Tom Woods Show, episode 1724. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Folks, if you're like me, one of the most demoralizing things is when someone utters the truth and then lamely apologizes. Well, not these folks. I've got a free ebook of stories from heroic professors who told the PC mob to go pound sand. Stories from Jordan Peterson, Michael Rechtenwald, and others. Check it out at againstthemob.com. Hey everybody, Tom Woods here. I'm joined today by James Lindsay, who, with Helen Pluckrose, is co-author of the brand new book, Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. James has a very interesting background, holds a PhD in mathematics. We're going to talk about his background in just a minute. And I feel certain that a lot of you will be familiar with him, even if not by name, you'll know about at least something he was involved in that had to do with exposing certain parts of academia and the nonsense that goes on there. So we're going to be talking about that starting right now. Jim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Let's start off with a little bit of your background because people looking at a book like this might draw conclusions about you that aren't altogether true. So I want to give you a chance to just talk about where you're coming from and maybe some of your own professional background. Okay. Um, Academically, my professional background is that I majored in physics originally. And after getting a bachelor's degree in physics, I left that discipline, went on to get a master's and then PhD in mathematics. That was 10 years ago. And I left the academy and started to work in a personal small business with my wife for the ensuing 10 years. During that time, I got both, uh, I guess, philosophically or intellectually active in broadly what might be construed as the culture wars, while uh, also trying to make sense of the the, the so-called debate in the atheism movement in particular. The, so the, the new atheism movement was something I was very active in from maybe 2011 until 2015, at which point I decided that it had become enough of its own problem and enough of its own almost religious thing that I wasn't particularly interested in it any longer. I also watched it get kind of conquered and destroyed by social justice, which was the faction that had arisen within that movement and asserted dominance over it, and I think is the the reason for its demise. When I say I got politically active, I was <laughs> campaigning for President Obama to place me politically. So I would consider myself a, a denizen of the left if I have to be labeled, although I prefer not to be that interested in politics anymore. I feel like I was kind of always faking it. Um, politics isn't something I'm greatly interested in. I guess I'm slightly knowledgeable about it and in the world, but it's not really what I do. So um, that would be sort of the the big picture stuff. Left wing atheist who decided that what's going on with social justice is not the best way to try to achieve a fairer society, and started to look into the the scholarship that defines that movement and, and justifies that movement, and saw just how piss poor it is. To be to be completely honest, it's it's poor methodologically, it's poor ethically, poor epistemologically. It doesn't really have anything going for it. It's sophistry at the most extreme level. So what I'm most famous for, and maybe the last thing to introduce myself, is that two years ago, I was part of the trio of academics who participated in what has been come to be known as the Grievance Studies Affair, or sometimes Sokol Squared, wherein we wrote 
20 fake academic papers and submitted them to journals and things like gender studies and ethnic studies, cultural studies, critical race studies, and so on, and had a significant number, seven of them, accepted for publication within uh, about a year's time total, including a rewrite of a chapter of Mein Kampf, which was accepted by a feminist social work journal. And... uh, very famous paper about dog humping uh, in a rape culture that was accepted and given an award for excellence by the leading feminist geography journal, among several others. So I'm probably best well known for that. The book Cynical Theories was born out of trying to say, I guess our, our logic, Helen's and mine, our logic would have been, okay, with the Grievance Studies Affair, we showed that there is a problem with the scholarship and then now let's explain what that problem is very clearly and show how it works and where it came from. And that's what Cynical Theories was about. Well, let's start then with some terms. And, oh, gosh, I almost hate to do this because when I was reading your book and you get to postmodernism, you talk about how maddeningly difficult it is to nail down exactly what it is and what it's all about and that it's kind of slippery. There, are, So there are a couple terms, though, I'd like you to wrestle with all the same for the sake of the audience. Postmodernism and mm-hmm. critical theory. Now, Postmodernism, you do outline a couple of what you describe as its principles, and I'm just going to read those. The postmodern knowledge principle, radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable, and a commitment to cultural constructivism. And then the postmodern political principle, a belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies which decide what can be known and how. Maybe we can use that as the beginning of a discussion of postmodernism, but also what does critical theory mean? Sure. So that is really, if you had just asked me in the briefest form to define what postmodernism is, that's what I would have told you. So it's a good backbone. Postmodernism really is this very cynical and pessimistic philosophy about knowledge at its root. It is the observation or proceeds, it's a philosophy proceeding from the observation that ultimately human beings are the ones who have to decide what we think is true about the world and what we think is false about the world. And so since human beings are involved in doing this, they have inherent social and political biases and that those are not typically well examined, which is actually false in the case of of scientific inquiry. But the postmodern assumption is that those are not examined at all. And thus there is a complete removal from objectivity in all human endeavors, including science. And it needs to be replaced with a radical subjectivity that understands that politics pervades every claim to knowledge. So it's a shift in thinking about knowledge in terms of politics and thus power, which it equates as being the same. I think the best simple sentence that characterizes the uh, postmodern knowledge principle is uh, a derivation from directly from the postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault and his his idea is that it misses the point to talk about whether or not a claim on the truth is actually true or false, because what's relevant is that politics are what end up authenticating the statement one way or another. And that means some people who have power are behind deciding to call something true, and that power is what needs to be investigated instead of the truth or falsity of the claim itself. If you add in one extra dimension to postmodernism is an extreme skepticism that language can convey meaning at all. So our words are, in a sense, you've probably heard of the the distinction between the map and the terrain. Well, the, the words that we use, the sentences that we construct, the discourses that we speak in are, in a sense, the map. And the postmodern 
view of this is that they have no faithful connection whatsoever to the terrain. The words are more or less utterly arbitrary and defined only in relationship to one another. And so if I were to say something like dog and point at a dog, that wouldn't really be a sufficient way for you to understand what a dog is. And so it's clear that pointing to reality doesn't tell us anything about what words mean. Maybe one extra dimension is a general skepticism of sweeping explanations of how society works, such as enlightenment, reason and and empiricism, or Christianity, or Marxism even. It was a very pessimistic view that had given up on all of these things. That's phrased by uh, Jean-Francois Lyotard as a general incredulity toward meta-narratives, is how he puts it. So that's postmodernism in a nutshell. Critical theory is a completely separate branch, or nearly completely separate branch, of European philosophy that extends back to about 1920, It arises originally from the Marxist thinkers, uh, Lukács, Gramsci. Eventually, you had uh, Walter Benjamin and then Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. And they had this view. I should just say what their purpose was. They were Marxists, and they had seen the failures of Marxism to manifest, and they were trying to figure out why. And so they were turning to the nascent fields of psychology and sociology primarily to try to make sense of it. So on one level, there was the attempt to bring Freudian psychoanalysis into Marx's analysis to marry Marx and Freud. They also turned to the um, sociology primarily of Max Weber. Gramsci was very interested, for example, in describing how the elite in society construct a culture that dictates how the, I guess, middle class or the even lower class will think about the world and accept their lot. And so they tried to start getting into the heads of ordinary people to try to figure out why they're voting against their own interests. Uh, and in particular, what against their own interests means from their perspective is not Marxist. They're not doing a Marxist revolution. And This developed over the course of the 20th century. These people started in Frankfurt, Germany. World War II, they were also mostly Jews. World War II started to break out, not the best place in the world to be as a Jewish thinker. So they took off to Geneva, I think in the late 1930s, and eventually moved to the United States. Um, The post-war critical theory school was headed up by a guy named, primarily by Herbert Marcuse, who was at Columbia University, and Marcuse was the one to identify that, in his opinion, we live in a permanent threat of fascism in a world where fascism has come about ever. And so we have to repress anything that could lead to intolerance or fascism, including by violence. He called this repressive or discriminating tolerance. And he was also probably the first significant thinker to shift so you can think of Marxism as being focused on economics and the, the Frankfurt School shifted the focus to culture and Marcuse very explicitly shifted the focus to matters of identity politics. He very explicitly in One Dimensional Man talks about the need for, which is his most famous book, for the need for, for thinking in terms of, of minority races kind of rising up against the, the systems of oppression that he saw as interlocking with capitalism and other things. He inspired a generation of very radical activists who most probably prominently or importantly, Angela Davis, who's getting a lot of press again today. She's still alive. Angela Davis uh, was at UC, I think SD, 
with Herbert Marcuse for a while and saw him as a mentor and became very radical. Uh, she said that he radicalized her, in fact. And um, she informed the black feminists who later, as we turn in cynical theories to try to describe, took up postmodern tools to continue the radical activism around 1990. I think she was at University of California, Davis, at least at one Davis, point. Davis, yes, 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 that's right. Yeah. Sorry, Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, by the way, in parentheses about Angela Davis, that as there's been this talk about defunding the police and talking about prisons and prison abolition and stuff, I've seen on social media people saying, what a shame we're not hearing from Angela Davis. We should Angela Davis should be front and center in America right now talking about prison abolition. And I thought, but in the 70s, when there were prisoners of conscience behind the Iron Curtain and people turned to Angela Davis to see if she could use some of her influence to get them removed, she said, no, they probably were causing trouble for the regime. They should stay in prison. I thought, this is some champion of prison abolition you have here. But all the same, no, sticking to our topic, at least when listening to a discussion of postmodernism, the man on the street may say, this all sounds very abstract. How does this translate into reality? How does it manifest itself in real life? Well, it, it's a way of viewing the world, and it really has to be seen as such. What's developed between the school of critical theory and the school of postmodernism, each of those presents a way of viewing the world. And as we argue in cynical theories, they've combined into a single worldview now that, that we're, we're seeing in the so-called woke movement. And the critical way of viewing the world is that a couple of things, that traditional theories about the world, like science and philosophy or uh, rationality, are not sufficient to fully understand the world because it doesn't deal with moral problematics. It doesn't deal with taking ideas out that cause problems uh, in, in the sense of establishing and creating systemic oppression. And so that moral adjudication has to be added to the evaluation of ideas. And so what critical theory does is it separates the world following Marx's idea of conflict theory to the, to the letter. It separates the world into classes of oppressor versus oppressed. The oppressor class is usually unaware that they're participating in oppression and they need to be awakened to it and, and guilted out of it and overthrown. The oppressed class is usually driven into false consciousness by their oppressors to accept their oppression and they need to be awakened to a revolutionary consciousness called critical consciousness that makes them want to do this. So it's a way of viewing the world where there are the oppressed and those who oppress them with a very clear moral dynamic of who is good and who is bad. Those who are supporting liberation are good. Those who support the status quo are bad. And that's that's the critical theory worldview. It's a very seductive worldview if you happen to be sociopolitically aggrieved. And so it makes its way out into the world through activists who have taken up this worldview, literally teaching people to think that way. And that's relevant because they took uh, the critical pedagogy movement started in the 1970s and by the early 1980s had basically turned most of our colleges of teacher education into critical pedagogy schools that were teaching them to see the world through this particular lens, systems of power, oppressor versus oppressed, in a zero-sum conflict, and to make that a educational priority. So it also made its way out into the world through teaching people to think this way. The postmodern way of thinking about the world is that we can't trust things like science. We can't trust things like reason. Everything is biased. Our own lived experience is the only trustworthy thing. And when that ended up getting mixed with this uh, very radical critical identity politics, 
Then it became identity groups have their own knowledges. Those knowledges, if they are from an oppressed group, cannot be challenged. If they are knowledges from a dominant group, they must be interrogated for their biases. And so it's a way of viewing the world that feeds very, very powerfully into ideas of victimhood or grievance as mediated through these concepts of systemic oppression. And they are very seductive ideas. So it all seems very abstract, but at the bottom of it is a worldview that is very easy to take up, can be very seductive because it gives many people a way to completely deny their own responsibility for any of the bad things that happen to them or the ways that things aren't working out or their lack of success, while it gives other people a perspective in which they can become something like uh, miniature civil rights heroes who we all venerate merely by engaging in kind of strange verbal, uh, almost symbolic activism like hashtags and calling people names uh, and informing social media mobs. Maybe I'm stating the obvious, but it seems as if the way these people have constructed their view of the world, it's impossible for there to be civil discourse between different groups. Is, yeah. Do you think that's really more or less true? Yes, it's simultaneously impossible and completely discouraged, strongly discouraged. Civility is seen as a value that has been brought into the world under a doctrine of white supremacy or even and, and also sometimes patriarchy. And so civility is seen as a way, demands for civility and civil discourse are seen as ways to suppress those who are in oppressed status. The, the oppressed aren't allowed to speak on their own terms. They're forced to speak in civil terms that deny their anger, that deny their pain, that deny their trauma. So it's strongly discouraged to use uh, civil discourse, but it's also impossible because when you have now a shift to a very um, lived experience-based or, or subjective, uh, subjectivist frame of reference for truth claims, which is the postmodern contribution here, there's no possibility for discourse. If, if somebody says that, you know, racism is present in our organization and then somebody says, well, I'm willing to hear the evidence, where's the evidence? The reply is, if you lived as somebody who's systemically oppressed by race, you would already know. So asking for evidence is proof that you're not and you're therefore acting in a racist way. The subjective experience of being able to claim racism is sufficient because it's something that exists inside somebody's own personal experience and personal uh, interpretation of the world. It is unfalsifiable. It is unassailable. And then when you add in the moral implication that it is furthering the oppression and preventing liberation to question such a narrative, you literally have a recipe to make it impossible to have civil discourse or to discuss the issues whatsoever. It is it's a perfect storm for being unable to debate the issue. As an atheist coming at this from somebody who did the atheism movement stuff years ago, it's very much like when I would encounter a fundamentalist Christian who would say, well, as an atheist, because God gives reason, you don't believe in God, you don't have any reason. So nothing you're saying is based in reason. So it, it's not even an argument. But it's worse than that because it adds in layers and layers of of moral judgment and the there is no, like at least with religion, they see God as the objective standard. So they're still appealing to an objective standard. This is literally each person has their own truth, which reflects their own so-called lived reality, which literally is viewed as a separate reality from everybody else's. So there's no shared reality upon which discussion could take place. 
Now, again, I, I hate to just be standing here stating the obvious, but if this kind of idea were ever to really gain a foothold, now it's obviously present in parts of academia, maybe much of academia, and it has spread into some popular movements, let's say. I don't know how many people think this way, but it, it's not trivial amount, I'll say. If this ever were to reach critical mass, an outlook that claims that it's an impossibility and even undesirable to have the kind of back and forth discourse that, well, I don't know, I guess has characterized Western civilization since the platonic dialogues, for heaven's sake. What other way of adjudicating our disputes is there than violence? There, as far as I can tell, there's not one if it reaches critical mass, because the only options when you don't have dialogue are marginalization and violence. You can marginalize that which is small enough to not have a bid on cultural hegemony. You can't marginalize something that becomes big enough, which might only be as few as, depending on the different studies that you look at, anywhere between maybe five to eight or upwards to 15 to 18% of the population. Once you hit that level, that is your critical mass. And you no longer can marginalize. And so violence is going to be, <laughs> going to be, violence is already occurring as a predictable consequence of an ideology that thinks this way. There's absolutely no way to resolve conflicts between individuals. I don't want to even say to resolve conflicts between groups because groups are made of individuals who are not necessarily defined by their group. This is an error that this scholarship and, and ideology makes, is that people are, are representatives of their identity group first and individuals much further down the line, if at all. So there's no possibility to, to have dialogue. Violence is going to be a necessary consequence if you can't kind of... It sounds mean, and it sounds like exactly what they claim is happening, but if you can't squash the ideas out to the fringes and allow any people who want to believe them to do so as matters of private conscience, but not as something that they can uh, gang press or other individuals or institutions into having to adopt. Well, let's take a little time to look at some specific examples that you have in succeeding chapters. So for example, uh, so-called queer theory or queer studies I really hadn't known much about this. I knew it existed. I had a sense of what it must be about, but it's much more radical than I thought it was. And, it, and of course, I see exactly in light of postmodernism, I see how it fits into the picture. But can you describe it? Sure. Queer theory is a, basically, it's a relentless war on the idea that the normal should be allowed to be considered stable and normal. And so it's an, it's an assault on the idea of normality itself, especially where it pertains to sex, gender, or sexuality. So the roots of queer theory are that they, the people who espouse this, this idea think that the categories of sex, gender, and sexuality that we all are aware of and, and see as being stable, categories like man and woman, uh, as far as sex goes, categories like gay and straight and bisexual as far as sexuality goes, categories like masculine and feminine as far as gender goes, that those categories are in fact meaningless. And in fact, that believing that those categories have meaning causes oppression for people who don't feel like they fit within them. And so those categories themselves have to be taken apart and shown to be absurd. And that's the mission of queer theory. Doing that process is what they call queering something to make it more queer or more odd or more absurd or more strange than, than meets the eye. 
And the purpose is, is so that anybody who feels like they don't fit properly into those categories can feel liberated from them. As Michel Foucault, to dip back into our, our postmodern philosophy, would have said it expands their potentialities of being. They're no longer being limited. And of course, Foucault was a gay man who was into some pretty radical sex and didn't think there should be age of consent laws and things like this. And so you can kind of see where the motivation for it comes from. But the idea is to break down any sense of stable categorization. Uh, And in particular, the one at the heart of everything is normal versus abnormal. The belief that we can say this is normal and that is abnormal isn't merely descriptive in a statistical sense, saying that like 99.8% of the population falls into the normal category. So that means that's what normal is by definition in a descriptive sense. But it also carries the moral implication that people should have to be that way. They literally call being put into categories like man or woman or straight or gay. They consider that a. it's literally called a violence of categorization. So they see it as a violence being done to their identity that needs to be fought and needs to be usually fought through subversion. Uh, queer theory tends to like parody and subversion to, to make things look silly and absurd and make the people who, who believe in things like men are men and women are women uh, to look like silly, retrograde um, people who don't understand the nuances of life. It's interesting that people who are so interested in the limitations of language and the uh, whether language can convey truth or whether it's even sensible to make a, an inquiry like that, at the same time, the, what they've done to the word violence is, is rather astonishing because virtually all the times they use it, they're referring to clearly nonviolent activities. And yet when we have clearly violent activities occurring in the street, there's always some euphemism to describe those. Yeah, so when people are saying that they don't really believe in the, the, the ability of language to convey stable meaning, and if, if, those, if people who say that are actually able to gain power to enforce that. What that means is that they're setting themselves up as the arbiter of what words mean in certain contexts and what they mean in other contexts can be different. So they get to adjudicate what the words mean and when they mean what they mean that. So it sounds like it's all silly when we talk about queering this or whatever, but it's actually very, very serious. It's a very serious problem because if you can start manipulating, the word violence is such a good example. If you can start manipulating what the word means so that it's always to your own advantage, you don't have to change the wording of a law. You don't have to change the wording of a policy. You don't have to change the wording of a contract. You don't have to change the wording of the constitution. And the document at hand means something different because you've changed the meaning of the words within it. And therefore, the the, the lack of stability of meaning gives the ability to change that meaning at will to people who end up having the political power. So now you can start to see why that observation from Michel Foucault, which has been repeated by generations of activists since, that it is irrelevant whether a claim on the truth is true or false, because all that matters is the political ramifications and political processes that installed it as being believed as truth. You can see how how that is not just a weird description of reality, but is actually a very potent activist weapon. Because if the people who believe that are able to gain power, they can then manipulate language in any domain that they want in order to to, to maintain their own advantage. So words are violence. So you can't say certain words near or or to to these people or around these people or in any context where they might ever stumble upon them or at all. But then at the same time, looting and destroying 
property uh, that people have built with their livelihoods, including sometimes that, that they're inside and they're being injured, or in some cases they've been burned to death in these riots, that doesn't constitute violence because that's just property and property damage isn't violence. So it's, it's a means to control society by controlling, um, by, by setting up basically a priesthood who decides what words mean and when they mean them that way and can therefore set the rules arbitrarily and control everything. Hey everybody, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, Policy Genius. I bet you had no idea that September was National Life Insurance Awareness Month. You probably weren't observing that in any way, but I'm going to give you a perfect way to observe it at a time when a lot of people wonder if it's even possible to buy life insurance. Well, the good news is it's still easy to shop for life insurance even now. And if you have loved ones, depending on your income, well, you probably should do that. And right now you could save $1,500 or more per year just by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. Policy Genius is an insurance marketplace built and backed by a team of industry experts. And it works so simply. You head to policygenius.com and in minutes you work out how much coverage you need and you're comparing quotes from top insurers, finding your best price. Next step, apply for your lowest price. And step three, the Policy Genius team handles all the paperwork and red tape. They work for you, not the insurance company. So if you hit any speed bumps during the application process, They'll take care of everything. They even have policies that allow eligible customers to skip the in-person medical exam and do it over the phone. And that's how Policy Genius has earned a five-star rating across over 1,600 reviews on Trustpilot and Google. So if you need life insurance, head to policygenius.com right now to get started. You could save $1,500 or more a year by comparing quotes on their marketplace. Policy Genius, when it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. I want to cover a couple more things. You have a chapter, Disability and Fat Studies. And this, I think, helps to clarify the difference between, let's say, reform liberalism, you know, like, you know, of just of the 20th century variety and the social justice leftism that we see. Because you know, I could see, it was George H.W. Bush who helped pass the Americans with Disabilities Act 30 years ago, Okay. That seems to me like the kind of thing that a reform liberal would want to see done. But maybe the analogy I would draw would be the way a Marxist would react if you said, well, labor unions will solve the problem. He would just think, oh my gosh, how naive and ridiculous can you be? You're not even thinking in the same ballpark as the way I'm thinking. I think that's the way a social justice person might look at it if you say, well, we passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. That's not even remotely what we're talking about here. So, yeah, that's so, right. so t tell me more about this. What, why, how is disability politicized? So the disability studies example is really a good one. In fact, I think it's the most useful part of the book for really understanding in a way that most people who, who you've described as reformed liberals can understand because there's a lot of sense-making going around uh, at the basic claims. And then there's a very clear line where it's obvious that it's gone too far. So disability studies originated out of a development that was known as the social model of disability. There are three different models of disability of how humans have understood disability going back at least over the last maybe 100 years or so. Uh, they're the individual model, the medical model, and the social model. So the individual model would say that a person's disability is a matter of their own individual, who they are as an individual. And it's in some sense, you know, they've got some responsibility to take to make up for it. And we wish them the best. The medical model would see a disability uh, as a medical issue. So you could imagine an amputee being seen as a medical issue. How do we come up with a prosthetic that can enable them to, you know, participate more fully in life? 
And so the the onus of working with disability falls on the medical community rather than just the individual. And then the uh, social model goes a little further and says, well, society should take some effort as well to increasing, say, disability accessibility or um, opportunities or non-discrimination. So when we see things like wheelchair ramps, when we see things like handicapped parking spaces, those uh, sidewalk bricks that have the texture so that blind people can follow them. When you go to, to cross the street and you press the, the button at the crosswalk and it makes a noise so that they because they can't see the crossing light, but they can hear um, when you have closed captioning for the hearing impaired. These are efforts that society can take in order to increase, increase disability access. And almost everybody thinks, yep, that was a good idea. <laughs> that was a really good idea that uh, if you want to look at it from a humanitarian perspective that improves lives that have have no reason to not be improved. Uh, we can afford to do it. If you look at it from an economic perspective, it is an investment probably that's worth making, even if, because the humanitarian side, maybe it doesn't have to have a good ROI, but even if it doesn't, you're still enabling people to participate in the economy who would be less able or not able to participate in it by, by taking these measures. So the social model of disability puts some responsibility on society. This isn't what disability study, disability studies started there and went nuts. They decided instead that we need to see it that society has all of the responsibility for dealing with disabilities. So in their view, a person is not disabled to say because they're deaf or because they're blind or because they're missing a limb or whatever else leads to their disability status. The person is disabled because society isn't accommodating them. Therefore, society is the thing that's disabling them. And society is therefore responsible to take every conceivable measure, not every plausible, not every affordable, every conceivable measure to make their disability irrelevant or else society is the disabling entity or agent. And that's the way the disability study sees the world. And uh, they then take it further because everything becomes identity politics and they start to say that people who have various disabled identities need to put that identity first. They need to identify as a deaf person who has a culture around them of deaf people, a deaf culture that they are a part of, which is then going to be seen in the identity political way like a tribe. Just like, you know, you hear people say the black community, well, there's the deaf community. And when they say that, they often mean a politically active sort of way to be used for identity politics. And they've leaned into this so far that to suggest that we would, you know, come up with some high-tech solution like we see in Star Wars, where every amputee can have their limbs either regrown or cybernetically replaced, would be a genocide of people with those identities. They've literally jumped the shark completely. So by putting the responsibility 100% on society to accommodate and then to see the identity itself as something that needs to be leaned into, which when you say, okay, deafness, blindness, you know, if people choose to want to not have medical interventions, that's fine. But when you start looking at it in terms of mental illness as seeing that as an identity factor and not something necessarily that can or should be treated, or in, as it dips into fat studies, which is kind of a specific version of this, or the obesity that shouldn't be treated, now you're, you're definitely working in a very bizarre realm that most people don't recognize as being uh, responsible or, or, or good for society. So it's important then, and I think now by now it's obvious for people to understand that they're probably falling back on traditional ways of thinking when they look at even the extreme, these extreme corners of the left and thinking, well, 
their hearts are in the right place, even if they have bizarre manifestations of their desires. They they, they just want what's best for the underprivileged and the, the marginalized, and so they just want to see some improvements brought about. That is not really what's happening here. I, mean, I, I think that I know a lot of people who are traditional left liberals, like my dissertation advisor at Columbia, Alan Brinkley, was the classic example of a a left liberal. I knew his views on virtually everything. I knew how he would defend them. I didn't agree with them, and I I thought there were better ways to bring about what he wanted to see happen. But I never questioned that he was a sincere person who thought he was helping people with this. And so I think, you know, with with government uh, programs for, for this group or that, and I think people may think that this is just an extreme, exaggerated version of that. But wanting to see people's material condition improved and their opportunities expanded does not commit people to postmodernism or critical theory or any of the kind of oddball stuff you're talking about, obviously. Yeah, that's right. These these things, you could actually see them as a very odd, um, like extremist cult that came out of that impression of good intentions that, the, you know, that they have. And I actually would would say that I think that the majority of the people doing this are actually sincere in their beliefs, while, of course, there are always some who are opportunists and, and grifters and so on who are not. I think, and this is a particularly, uh, an ideology that's particularly open to, to being gamed by such bad actors. I still think the majority of people who have taken it up, even deeply in earnest, um, are, are sincere. And certainly most of the people who are, I, I would call them woke-ish, or the the kind of you know progressive liberal sympathizers out there who've taken on quite a bit of the ideology without realizing how bad it is. I think they're also sincere in wanting to see a better society. The problem is is that the people driving the ideology believe that the only way, and I mean only way, not no compromise, no debate, no discussion, no half measures to literally quote Hitler, the only way that we can achieve improvements in society is by burning down the old world and building a new one on its ashes. That's a phrase that is literally being used to describe what's happening in cities like Portland and cities like Kenosha, Wisconsin, to to burn down the old world and build a new one on its ashes. And if you wonder, yes, this is the Marxist vision that we have to to build the new world in the shell of the old one after uh, it's been overthrown. And they, they make this very explicit. They say that the system... Even if no people are, are racists, no people have racist intentions, no people have sexist intentions or misogynistic intentions, no people hate or hate women or any of this, the system itself remains racist, white supremacist, sexist, misogynist, and the, until the system itself is fully remade, and this refers to the knowledge system, the language system, the institutional system, every conceivable facet of our society, until it is completely disrupted and dismantled, and then uh, remade anew with a critical consciousness, it will be impossible to create the necessary reforms. So this is the the intentions. I believe the people who are pushing it believe this, but what they believe is freaking horrifying. Well, and that leads to my final question. This is really a, this is not a question in your book, really, but it's a question that I'm asking you as one human being to another. Maybe you know a, a fellow named Michael Rechtenwald, who's recently retired from NYU. He had uh, conflict with some of the same people. And that was partly because he was a traditional Marxist. And his view was that this stuff is not Marxism. Clearly, is not, it's not the, the Marxist class analysis. It's a bastardization of it, but it is not traditional Marxism. 
And then as time went on and he got into more and more fights, he had a complete ideological transformation. And when he saw the way he was treated for being a dissenter, uh, people wouldn't get on the same elevator with him at NYU. It was absolutely bizarre. He drew a conclusion from this. He thought, well, if there's if the, if the ideology I subscribe to, or at least is in the ballpark of what I subscribe to, generates human beings like this, maybe there's something wrong with it. Maybe I have to rethink everything I've believed my whole career. So I guess my question to you is, it's hard to know how widespread this is because the people who spread it tend to intimidate and bully others into silence and compliance. So we don't know how many people are echoing these talking points because they're pressured into it or because it's their deeply held belief. But regardless, it's a major chunk of the left that is thinking this way. Has it ever made you think to yourself in the midst of saying to interviewers, listen, I identify with the left. I just think this is a terrible aberration. Have you ever thought maybe there's something wrong with the left itself that it generates outcomes like this? I'll go further. I think there's a, there's something wrong with thinking in terms of left and right at all. I think that the the proper way to think is here is an issue, here are a set of principles, where do I stand with relationship to those and let the cards fall where they may. So when I said earlier that I'm on the left, I, I very much don't identify as being on the left. I just know that if we were to sit down and take an inventory of my views about how I think society might best work that, um, and we put them on you know, the normal spectra or compasses or whatever they call them, I would land somewhere pretty... Uh, pretty mainline in the middle of the left and pretty deeply in libertarian territory if we're going to talk about the political compass test. So I don't like to think in terms of being on a side at all. Uh, and I understand why people need to and why they do and why it's, it's valuable to do so. Uh, and, and to kind of like, you know, say it's conservative thought, for example, and you want to deepen your, your, your view of conservative thought. I do think that there are profound problems with the left. I think there are profound problems also with the right. And I think there's a profound problem with thinking in terms of left and right instead of thinking in terms of principles and in specific issues. So I have absolutely no problem saying that I'm on the left, but I'm not really of the left, if that makes any sense. So I don't agree with a great deal of what's going on in leftist thought. I think that, in fact, the most important thing politically to be doing is to be facilitating dialogue across divides of, of political orientation. And I'm not so naive as to say, well, there's the left and the right, because it's not quite right. There, there, are, there are lots of people within the, well, it's broadly you know, seen as the left. There are lots of orientations there. There are lots within conservatism. The libertarians kind of spread out across both sides of that and form a sort of third pole. And we probably could find more poles, more universes of, of political thought. And people disagree across these. And I think the most important thing is to find ways for those people to communicate and learn from each other. My general belief is fundamentally scientific, which is that I think that human beings have, and this applies even to the political realm, despite saying scientific, but I think that human beings generally are pretty clever, but we're not nearly as clever as we think we are. And that the process of checking each other against people that we that, that don't agree with us is the way that we whittle out good ideas from bad ideas. And, and if you want to talk about collectivism, move forward as a collective. But that's through you disagreeing with me, me disagreeing with you, and, and each of us putting our ideas up on the table to be criticized by one another. Um, my father gave me an analogy that I've extended when I was a teenager, and I thought about it this way kind of all along, is that politically, if we're going to talk right and left, he said that, that the left side is like the gas pedal and the, the right side is like the brakes. 
Sometimes you have to go, sometimes you have to stop. And taking it further, or slow down even, uh, so taking it even further, you have two hands on the wheel, or I hope you do. Uh, hands-free laws, everybody, I guess. You have two hands on the wheel. One hand is the left hand, one hand is the right hand. And if you want to steer the car successfully, they have to coordinate with one another. They have to be able to figure out what the right thing to do is, hopefully by you know where the, the brain of the person driving is where that's mediated, and figure out what needs to be done. And then when it's time to turn left, turn left. And when it's time to turn right, turn right. And then you use our, our faculties of reason, our ability to discuss to disagree, to have dialogue, our ability to gather evidence and weigh the evidence and, and, and apply different methods to, to suss out truths from the evidence, to decide when it's time to turn left, when it's time to apply the brakes, when it's time to apply the gas, and when it's time to turn right. And so in that sense, if it turns out that I have a suite of beliefs that put me on the right instead of the left, that doesn't bother me in the least, and I'm happy to be seen as a conservative. If I have a suite of beliefs that place me in the progressive left or anywhere else, uh, I'm content to be placed there as long as I can be consistent in my own principles and feel like that I have rationally de derived those principles and values and am willing to submit them to a process of dialogue and debate, which is kind of a dodge of your answer of your question, I guess, but that's genuinely how I think about it. So it's like your question didn't really apply to me. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly legitimate answer given where you're coming from. Well, the book is Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity and Why This Harms Everybody co-authored by our guests today, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. Well, best of luck with this great project, extremely readable. There, obviously, there's a lot of jargon in academic scholarship, particularly this type of scholarship, but you have taken that, translated it into English, and made it easy for people to understand. So they really, they're not, they're not hitting at a, a straw man. I think some conservative critics of this material have not really read it, and so they are not representing it very well, but I think you guys are. And that's a very important thing. We have to understand what's happening in the country right now and what's driving a lot of events and, and the transformation in thought that's taken place is chronicled very well in here, as well as a rational path forward. So it's extremely worthwhile. I'm linking to the book at tomwoods.com slash 1724, our show notes page for today. Jim, thanks so much. Hey, thank you very much. All right, folks, before we wrap up, I would like to let you know, especially all you Canadians, about a valuable new website. It's libertyquill.com. And the idea of it is to introduce libertarian thought to Canadians who may need it even more than Americans. It covers topics ranging from natural rights to Canadian history, current events, lots of short posts kept to roughly a thousand words each. They call them quills, uh, memes, lots of fun stuff, valuable information and I'm sure a somewhat lonely voice in Canada. So go support that over at libertyquill.com. And of course, you know how this works. This can be you with that website you've been dreaming about starting, but you got to get your hosting through my link, which means you get an excellent deal on excellent quality hosting and all the bonuses I offer you, including free publicity, in case you're worried that when you launch that website, it's just going to be tumbleweeds going by. Well, all woods here will make sure you get some nice visitors to your site. I'll also link to libertyquill.com at tomwoods.com slash 1724. And if you'd like to get these bonuses for yourself, check them out at tomwoods.com slash publicity. See you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit tomwoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.
Like the sound of The Tom Woods Show? My audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.